grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Doormats with uh, Chinese New Year greetings have been trending for a few years, but I only noticed them this year. Do you have one? Maybe we'll see some when we go visiting later. I started noticing uh, CNY doormats because I saw a rather exciting one when the shops were just putting out uh, CNY decorations. It was a red one with a yellow line across the length of it. And on top of that line, yellow words saying, Step over to receive blessings. Wow. What a great message, yeah? A concise statement with a promise and calls for a response. It's better than my sermons. Maybe we should stop printing tracks and uh, making altar calls. We should just design uh, salvation doormats and leave them lying around. Step over to receive Jesus Christ. Step over to have eternal life. Step out in faith to receive salvation. Not sure if this will work because uh, most people, most places, most of the time uh, don't take doormats seriously. Eh? Uh, it's only during Chinese New Year that we suspend judgment to play along for a good laugh. On this happy day, we'll be looking at the first lecture that Paul gave to the Corinthians in his letter to them. And by lecture, I do mean scolding. Sorry to be preaching on this uh, today, but the lectionary doesn't follow the lunar calendar. And it was either this or judgment from the book of Isaiah. Uh, but seriously, it's because uh, Reverend Jonathan told us to preach from 1 Corinthians. Yeah? Uh, we're doing a mini-series uh, covering chapters 1 and 2 uh, in uh, the following weeks. So my portion is from chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. It is the beginning of Paul's first lecture, which runs from chapter 1 to chapter 4. And verses 10 to 11 tell us what it is all about. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarrelling among you, my brothers. Now, Chloe is a wealthy businesswoman who has employees going uh, back and forth between Ephesus and Corinth. Her people brought back reliable eyewitness accounts of what was going on within the church community in Corinth. They observed that the Corinthian believers were at odds with each other and had broken up into cliques. Paul was alarmed because the Corinthians were like his own children and he didn't like to see them hurting one another. Thus, he wrote to correct the situation. What was the cause of their divisions? The situation is quite complex, uh, so much so that it feels like an onion uh, as you try to understand uh, why Paul wrote what he wrote. On the surface, the community is divided because each person was devoted to a different Christian teacher. Each of them was saying, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. That is to say, some Corinthians chose to be loyal supporters of Paul, the founding father of their church. Others followed Apollos, a well-known, eloquent Christian teacher. Yet others claimed to belong to Peter, the true apostle who was with Jesus throughout the Lord's time on earth. There were also purists, who devoted themselves to the original founder of Christianity. Actually, nothing wrong with that, right? It's like people choose to attend different schools, or, you know, personal choice. Yeah. But Paul lets on in chapter 3 that there is jealousy and strife among them. It means people are not just doing their own thing quietly. You know? They were fighting each other out of jealousy. And it's particularly interesting 
that the Greek word for jealousy means both jealousy and zealousness. And this makes sense, right? Being zealous for someone uh, can lead us to become jealous for their sake. Intense liking for somebody can make us protective of them to the extent that we dislike anybody who threatens them in any way. At this point, I'm somehow reminded of F4. Maybe because Paul named four examples. I'm not calling them Christian F4, don't quote me. So whether you belong to the Taiwanese uh, or Korean F4 era, you may remember there were fan wars uh, between the fans. Rivalry was especially strong between fans of Jerry Yen and Vic Zhou, or Lee Min Ho and Kim Hyun Jung. Everyone wanted their favorite idol to end up with the girl, be the most popular, rank the highest on every chart. So they find fault with the others. The situation in Corinth is sort of similar. The Corinthians' zeal for their favorite teacher caused them to criticize other Christian teachers. And their zeal and jealousy was what fractured the body of Christ. While the fans of F4 uh, fought over which idol was more handsome or popular, the Corinthians were quarreling over which Christian teacher was the wisest of them all. Now, wisdom encompasses a lot of things. Paul tells us in verse 17 that the Corinthians valued words of eloquent wisdom, which also translates wisdom of words, fancy rhetoric, clever speech. If I can put it very simply, they were quarreling over which Christian teacher has the best public speaking skills. Public speaking skills were highly valued in Corinth, and this is related to the city's cultural background. Allow me to give a short explanation here. You see, Corinth was an abandoned Greek city uh, until Julius Caesar made it a colony in 44 BC. Julius Caesar repopulated the city with Romans as well as freed slaves from the Roman Empire, Assyrians, Egyptians, Jews. By Roman standards, these new Corinthians were, not many of these new Corinthians were wise, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. In fact, the Roman elites despised these former slaves and thought them too foolish, weak and lowly to be worthy inhabitants of the once noble Greek city. But by the grace of God, these freak men had the chance to change their lives by taking advantage of Corinth's strategic location near seaports and trade routes. It's, it feels like the Singapore story, you know, in a way. So they became traders and shop owners, uh, making money and making a name for themselves to shake off their inglorious past. The Corinthians Paul encountered almost a century later inherited their forefathers' hunger for money and thirst for social status. And one popular way to climb the social ladder was to sponsor well-known public speakers. The Corinthians gains prestige by collecting more talented speakers than his neighbour. And Corinth has no lack of public speakers because her prosperity attracted a lot of philosophers, debaters and teachers who came looking for patrons. So how did they choose between the many public speakers available? Well, by judging them on their public speaking skills. The Corinthians were big on external appearances. Hence, those who can stand confidently in the market square, speak loud and clear above the crowd noise, speak persuasive words without a script, and seize the attention of a very fluid audience, 
those with such skills were highly sought after. So coming back to what we were saying, the Corinthian believers were quarreling over which Christian teacher was the best public speaker. The fact is, they've already evaluated every well-known Christian teacher in the market and chosen their favourite. Now they were actively defending their choice because their teacher's reputation is tied to their own social status. At the end of the day, it's not just about teachers and wisdom. It's also about self-promotion, personal reputation, individual pride. Are there divisions in this church? Yes, we're cliquish. Yeah, a few families and uh, people have left our church over the years. But as far as I know, I don't think Good Shepherd has ever experienced a large group of people leave and set up a new church. No way, that sounds like church planting. Uh, correction, we have never had a large group of angry people leave to start a new church. This doesn't mean that we don't have to talk about church splits though. We should be aware of the reasons uh, churches end up splitting so that we can watch out for them and avoid something like that from happening to us. So there's this guy called uh, Tom Rayner who did a survey in 2015 asking Christians to share about the fights, schisms and conflicts in their congregations. He published 25 of them in an article. In the interest of time, I picked out three that can potentially happen in our church if we're not careful. Number one, some church members left the church because one church member hit the vacuum cleaner from them. It resulted in a major fight and split. Thus, the second Electrolux church was born. Number two, had people leave the church because the piano had been moved from one side of the platform to the other side. Now, this one worries me deeply because if you notice, our piano and keyboards are all on the same side. Is there a reason? I don't know. And number three, argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. I think I saw a verse in scripture that indicated it has to be no more than 1.5 inches longer than the pastor's beard. Well, in Singapore, as you know, we also need to consider our bishop's beard. Did I mention that this article is called 25 Silly Things Church Members Fight Over? They're indeed silly, which makes it all the more depressing to think that churches actually quarrel and split over such childish things. Furthermore, if such silly things can split a church, then anything can break us apart. Church unity is that fragile. How can we avoid childish things which can split us up? How do we guard against 25 and many other silly things that can make us grow apart? As I read through the 25 things, as well as many others in the comments section, I found that most of the situations involve what I think is right, what I want to see, what I think we should do, and what I would rather happen. Other writers also list uh, disagreements about budget expenditures, church programs, music and worship style, use of church space as reasons for church split. There seems to be less about doctrinal issues, uh, but more about personal opinions and preferences on non-essential things. 
the rampant self-centeredness of the ancient uh, Corinth church is well and alive in the modern church. If we want to guard against divisions, we should start by guarding against self-centeredness. Coming back to the problem at hand, it appears that self-centeredness is still not the centre of the Corinthian onion. Paul's final diagnosis, the fundamental problem, is the spiritual immaturity of the Corinthian believers. Although the Corinthians think they are wise and knowledgeable and gifted people who flow in the Spirit, Paul emphasised that they're not spiritual people at all. Instead, they are people of the flesh, infants in Christ, behaving only in a human way, being merely human. And he tell them in five different ways to get it into their puffed-up heads. And the proof of their spiritual immaturity is in the pudding. One would have thought that under the teaching of Paul, Apollos, Peter and Christ, the Corinthians were being transformed by the renewal of their minds. But yet, they were still conforming to old values and practices of the world, even carrying them over into the church. Instead of growing up in unity, they were growing apart in hostility. Now we're anxious to know how Paul disciplined these proud and arrogant Corinthians. By the power and wisdom of God, Paul skillfully addressed every single layer of the problem in his lecture. Concerning divisions, he called for unity in the name of the Lord. Concerning their zeal and jealousy, he channeled them to Christ. Concerning the exaltation of witness or wisdom, he preached the power of the cross. If they were concerned about their social status, Paul reassured them of their right standing with God. And to achieve true spiritual maturity, he pointed them to the Spirit of Jesus. In everything, Paul is turning them back to the Almighty God. Our time today does not allow us to unpack all these wonderful teachings. Therefore, we shall just confine ourselves to two and a half things from our passage. First, Paul calls for unity. Be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The Greek words for mind and judgment, sorry, or they mean almost the same thing. But I believe that Paul is using mind to refer to a way of thinking, you know, the mindset, the pattern of thought, while judgment means the product of that thinking process, uh, which can be an opinion, a conclusion, or a decision. So then what Paul is saying is unity can be achieved when everyone is thinking in the same way, arriving at the same opinion, and saying the same thing. Unity can be achieved when everyone thinks in the same way, arrives at the same opinion, and say the same thing. The question is, whose mind and whose way of thinking shall we tune ourselves to? Who else but our Lord Jesus Christ? Paul says the spiritual person has the mind of Christ. A member with the mind of Christ will remember to inform other members where she kept the vacuum cleaner so that other people can use it too. Christians with the mind of Christ will not insist on the position of the piano but give way to other people's preferences. A church with the mind of Christ 
will not impose their style on others, but respect each other's physical appearance. The remedy for human self-centeredness is the self-sacrificing mind and judgment of Jesus Christ. Second, Paul channels their zeal and jealousy away from human teachers back to Jesus Christ. Verses 13 to 15. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptised none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptised in my name. Now understand that some of the Corinthians chose to be baptised by their favourite teacher so that they can boast of a special connection. Like how some parents want to boast that their child was delivered by so-and-so famous gynae or tutored by so-and-so famous guru. Eh? So since baptism signifies a relationship with Jesus Christ and not the person doing the baptism, the Corinthians were blatantly forgetting the Lord and abusing baptism. Hence, Paul uses a series of rhetorical questions to point them back to Jesus. Is Christ divided? No. There is only one saviour, not many saviours. Was Paul crucified for you? No. The crucified Son of God is not Paul, not Apollos, not Peter. The name is Jesus. Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? No. Everyone's baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Even the few who were baptised by Paul cannot claim any special connection because it's not done in Paul's name. At this point, Stephanus, who was with Paul in Ephesus at the time this letter was being written, reminded Paul that his family was baptised by him. Paul acknowledges that he has forgotten. This memory lapse tells us that the apostle does not count, does not keep a record of who he baptised because he was not sent to start a personal fan club, but to preach the gospel. And Paul reminds us in the rest of the lecture that apostles, prophets, pastors and preachers are nothing but servants of God. Therefore, do not boast of a special relationship with a servant, but let the one who boasts, boast that they have a special relationship with the Lord God and Master. Indeed, every Christian may boast because we are all baptised in Jesus' name. Finally, Paul exalts the cross above human wisdom. For Christ did not send me to baptise but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, the message of the cross must not be delivered in bombastic words and persuasive expressions. The cross of Christ would become useless if Paul's preaching is dependent on his skill and eloquence. Why is that so? Stay tuned next week to find out more. But I will say this. The message of the cross is supposed to be simple even foolish by worldly standards. Since God made it simple for people to understand, we should not make it difficult. Remember the salvation doormats I was talking about in the beginning? It's really as simple as that. Step out in faith to receive salvation. Ours is not a joke 
or a superstition without any basis. It is an invitation with a powerful promise guaranteed by a loving and almighty God. In his own words, God says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is possible because he came in the person of Jesus Christ and sacrificed himself on the cross to obtain the forgiveness of our sins. In closing, today is Chinese New Year, and as Andrew was saying, it is customary for us to greet one another with auspicious words to wish each other well in the coming year. In line with our message this morning, I pray that in the new lunar year, we may all remain in relationship with Jesus, be united by sharing in the mind of Christ, and grow up into spiritual maturity. Or, as the Chinese would say, Happy New Year. Let's pray.